2 Peter chapter 3. We finish our series through the books of First and Second Peter this morning. I'm sad about it. I am. Every time we finish a series through a book of the Bible, I feel like I'm putting an old friend on a train and he's going away for a while. But uh, not really, not really. It, it is amazing. I will turn to portions of my Bible we've preached through at our church and I will see them all marked up and wrinkled and even some drops of sweat on there that I've put there from preaching. And, um, and it's, it's like seeing an old friend again. And so we, we, we'll have a reflection service next week thinking about what God has taught us through this book, of these books of First and Second Peter. But, but it's been a, a great uh, time spending with Peter as God through him teaches us. Well... What a crazy time in our culture with the election and so much turmoil and upset. There are a lot, there's, there's a lot of upset. Um, and not just because there are no more plastic bags at the grocery store. I mean, dog owners are protesting in the streets over that one for now, but... Uh, and you can smoke marijuana in California. I mean, people aren't even talking about those things. Imagine what a big election the presidential one was in light of the fact that those sorts of things aren't even getting much time. Uh, but, but it is a crazy time. And I, I want us to step back and think at what it means to really care about these issues and be invested as citizens in the society, to care deeply about issues of justice and righteousness and, and morality and goodness, but also framed with a Christian view of the world. That, that's the important balance for us, to be completely invested in, in this life now, but not as if this is all there is. That's, that's the challenge for us. I came across an article last week in Christianity Today, that asked 20 Christian leaders, how are you feeling the, the morning after the election? So on Wednesday morning, they asked these Christian leaders, how are you feeling? And two really stuck out to me as particularly helpful that I, I wanted to share with you. The first is someone I've really come to respect, uh, Trillian Newbell. She says this. I'll, I'll turn this on. Uh, this is the big question. How are you feeling after the presidential election? What are your feelings? And this is what Trillia says. My heart is concerned for those who are marginalized in our society. I'm praying that the church would prove to be uniquely different. A true city on a hill in the coming days. I also pray that we will be united in prayer for our president-elect. This is our calling to pray and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I love Trillia's uh, perspective on this because it's, it's got a beautiful Christian simplicity to it that we are called to be prayerful people in every circumstance and we are to care for those who are marginalized in our society and love people well in the midst of it. Even if we disagree with them, we should be known as loving people, people who care uh, for those who are pushed to the periphery in some way, uh, disenfranchised. We need to be people who care deeply for others. And I love this call for us to be different. It is so easy to be sucked into this way of being and relating in our culture. And we need to be different as God's people. The church should be a, a light on a hill, a, a true city on a hill in the coming days. And, and, and a prayerful people. I, I love Trilly's insights. And then, and then the other is another guy I have a ton of respect for. Uh, Barry Black is the... Um, 
is the uh, chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He, he got a name for himself because he um, prayed a prayer a couple of years ago when the government shutdown was being threatened, and he, he prayed, God, please stop the madness. And it was just great. He's got an amazing voice. And, and he, he prayed, would you please keep us from sounding rational when we're irrational? It was just this beautiful prayer he prayed. And he rebuked the Senate in the midst of his prayer, but I loved his response. Listen to what he said. Donald Trump has been elected president of the United States, and I feel grateful optimistic and satisfied i know so many read that and say what what but i love where he goes from here listen to what he says i feel grateful because first thessalonians 5 18 admonishes and everything give thanks for this is the will of god concerning you in christ jesus i feel optimistic because of romans 8 28 and everything god is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose I feel satisfied because Philippians 4.12 declares, I've learned in every state to feel contentment. In short, after the election of any president as a person of faith, I know I have nothing to fear. Love that perspective. Because it's not some simplistic, glib, oh, God's on the throne. No, it is a Bible-informed perspective on his life that gives him real emotions because of God's perspective on life. And I know some of you may hear those quotes of Scripture and say, oh, that's, that's just trite. No, it's the Bible. He's quoting God's perspective on everything. Who would you like him to quote instead? Uh, we've got to be people who care deeply about what God thinks about everything. And again, it doesn't mean we're not invested and care and are vexed by injustice, but it means we have an overarching perspective that makes us different than everybody who's running around anxious and fearful and, and angry. So uh, there's a place for righteous anger, there's no doubt about it, but within the context of God's great perspective on life. So I just wanted to offer those to you. They were very helpful to me, and I wanted them to, to offer them to you as well. Well, actually, I didn't, I didn't want to force anything on the election into this sermon, but I believe that this passage this morning is the perfect perspective we need for our troubled days. There's nothing more helpful we can think about than what we are this morning. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 11, we're finishing off the book of preaching through the book of 2 Peter, although you will preach next week in the reflection service. But let's read our passage together, 1 Peter 3, verse 11, and we'll read right through the end. Since, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Peter, yes, thank you, 2 Peter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, you know, before we keep reading, we better say, well, what is since? What's the since? The since points you back, right? When you see a since or a however or a but, or you, you say, oh, so what, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about, say, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment day is coming. There will be a cataclysmic, purging judgment of God that will have devastating effects on creation as we know it. Not to obliterate it, but to make it new. 
That's the sense. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and then it gets really practical right away. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Just another way of saying what he said in the previous chapter, uh, verse 10, the day of the Lord. Day of God, day of the Lord, the kingdom of God coming, all these same terms. The day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. So Paul teaches the same things Peter teaches here. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen beautiful passage. We learn in the beginning of this letter that Peter views this as his last word to them. He realizes that his death is not far off and he's writing a farewell charge, exhortation, encouragement, instruction to these these scattered believers that he loves dearly and wants them to have stability. That's what he's after here for us is stability. Um, Where'd Josiah go? Actually, Hunter, come here. I thought he was right there. He disappeared. The rapture. It's okay. It's fair. All right. All right, Hunter, just stand here. Stand here. Stand on one leg. Put your hands out and just try to knock me over. Oh, yes, we're very unstable. All right, now put your feet together and let's do the same thing. Together. Yeah, like Walt Harris stands. You ready? You ready? You ready? Oh, yes. Okay, now go like this. And bend your knees a little bit. We could just do this all day. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> Good. Thanks, Chris. Now, uh, you notice how we both increased in stability based on how we had our feet, right? One leg, we were both, before we even started smacking each other's hands, we were already losing our balance. And then we put our feet together, and that didn't feel very balanced either. But this is a whole different story. And what Peter wants us to do is go through life balanced, stable, not being knocked over easily, not being knocked off course easily. He wants stability. He wants strength. He wants consistency. 
He wants a, a life that's impervious to all of the things that'll knock you off course so easily. That's what he longs for, strength for your life. He loves you. God loves you, preaching through Peter. And so what he wants for you is a stable life. Not easily knocked off balance, but balanced and stable. That's what he's after for us as he says goodbye to this life and to these people who he loves. Don't lose your progress, verse 17. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. Don't lose your own stability. That's what he wants for us, to be stable people, grounded in our faith that gives us that stability. What's fascinating about this, though, is that Peter, when you read through the Gospels, is not a stable man. Not at all. And actually, one of the reasons we wanted to preach through First and Second Peter right after as a church we preached through the Gospel of Mark is because you see lots of instability in Peter's life and you see lots of stability in Peter's life in his letters, he writes, years later. And I find great hope in looking at Peter's life because over time, God turned him into a different man. The man writing First and Second Peter is so dramatically different than the Peter we see in the Gospel of Mark who's shooting his mouth off. He'll have moments of greatness and moments of stability and faith, but then literally will take his eyes off of Jesus and sink in the water, right? After he walks on it, and he'll have great moments of faith and say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then when Jesus talks about the cross, he'll, say, he'll have none of it, and Jesus calls him Satan. He's not stable. He's all over the place, imbalanced, not consistent, not steady. And now we have a man who is preaching out of a life of stability, encouraging others to be stable. Here's what's fascinating about this. I, I just love to study the Bible and see these things. This word for... Uh, stability there is the very same word Jesus uses when he's talking to Peter in Luke 2, uh, 22, 32, when he says, oh, Peter, uh, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. He, he wants you. He wants you unstable. He wants you lacking faith. And that he might sift you like wheat. But he says to Peter, but I've prayed for you. What? That you may not fail, that you may not falter and fall over. And then here's what he says. And when you have turned again, when you're stable, when, when you've turned from this instability in your life and find a stability, you know what he tells him to do? You know what he says? Anybody know what he says next to him? Once you find stability, what should you do? Strengthen your brothers, right, out of that stability. It's the very same word that Peter's using right here, to, it, it, that word strength and stability. It's same word. He's saying, I want you to be stable. No doubt he's thinking about Jesus, praying for him and bringing him to a place of stability in his own life, and he's doing the very thing Jesus commanded him to as he writes this letter to us this morning. The stability he found because of Jesus' ministry to him leads to a ministry bringing stability to the lives of other people. That should be the goal of our lives. And the way to this stability is through the future. The way to this stability is, is not lots of talk about yourself 
you know, assessing your personality type and your gifts and, and figuring out your personal calling in life. And, and as good as those things may be, we can become so self-absorbed and we become more and more lacking stability, more and more insecure and anxious the more self-focused we become. But the call here is to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our immediate circumstances, fix our eyes on what is to come, and have everything now radically altered by it, radically stable now because of what's to come. The first point of this morning's message is the future determines the present. For, for believers, what determines the present is not the present. It's the future based on what God's done in the past. He's given us a track record of his stability, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, and he's promised out of that that he will bring things to a glorious conclusion where he's glorified as he intends to be and where the good of his people will be uppermost in his goals. And so we trust him and it invades our lives now and brings us stability to our lives now. So the second coming determines how we live today. That's the point here. That's what these false teachers denied. And so the point again in the New Testament over and over again is what is to come determines how you live right now. It shapes everything right now. And that's what these false teachers he's combating were denying, that Jesus has either just come, is going to come spiritually only or that he's come already. And you don't need to define everything in your life in light of his second promise coming and day of judgment. You just live however you want. You live autonomously. You answer to yourself, not the coming judge. And so it's a radically different way of viewing all of life. So the future determines the present. That's the first point. There are only two points in this sermon. One, the future determines the present and, and, and the sort of people we should be. And we'll, we'll summarize that. But, but the, so the future determines the present. These false teachers, as we saw in chapter 2, denied the second coming. They denied that Jesus is coming as the judge. And that meant they no longer submitted their daily lives, their daily actions to Jesus and his lordship as the coming judge. That meant they no longer submitted their lives to the scrutiny of scripture, but actually distorted scripture. They subjected scripture to themselves rather than submitting to scripture under scripture. And so they made scripture justify that what they wanted to do, affirm what they already decided for themselves. And they did this, we're told, by distorting it. Do you see the description of this distortion of Scripture that they, they are going about? Verse 16. Um, actually, let's back up and, and look at this distortion starting in verse 15. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. So God is delaying the second coming, the judgment day, so that more people respond to the gospel and are saved. He's, he's, he's putting it off to allow for more time of salvation as a display of his patience. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So he's saying, Paul and I, Peter and Paul are on the same page. Well, they have may, have, may have had a conflict at one point over, over how much to still expect the law to carry its weight in our lives as Jews did. But, but now, he says, we're on the same page. The second coming has influenced everything. We teach the same thing on this. But what do these false teachers do to the teaching of Peter, Paul, all the apostles? He refers specifically to Paul's letters and says there are some things in them that are hard to understand. 
as if there's nothing hard in Peter's letters to understand. That's very interesting. Um, uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's an interesting way to describe what they're doing. They're twisting it. Now you think of Paul, uh, uh, the, the, the tent maker, and Peter the fisherman, right? Peter worked with ropes all the time and nets, and they got tangled all the time. And uh, I, I do not like fishing, mostly because of tangling issues. Um, <laughs> but, but Peter understood tangled ropes, if only he had to deal with the wire of our earbuds that get all tangled. He would have really understood tangled. But, but, it, but he's, got ro- he's got this idea of ropes. That's this, this word t- twisted. It, it's, it's all messed up and together. And I will actually give my tangled earbud wires to my children because it, uh, it frustrates me so much trying to, here, just do that. And they will beautifully with their little fingers. And, uh, but this twisting of scripture is what we've got here. And what they seem to be doing to twist it is camping on the difficult passages, especially in Paul's writings. And the Bible has difficult passages. It has passages who come along and say, what? Right? And not just in Leviticus, but through the whole Bible, you will find these passages that make you say, what is that talking about? Partly because it's old and it's not 21st century United States. It's, it's an old, very different culture and expressed in ways we don't understand sometimes. And so the Bible can have hard passages. Now, first let's ask why. Why would God inspire his word to have tough passages? And that's what he did. He did not say, ooh, that one didn't come out very well. That's going to confuse them, but there it is. No, he... he obviously purposely gives us passages that are hard. Why? Why would he do that? I think for a few reasons. One, uh, humility. Two, dependence on him, the Spirit's illuminating work, and the people of God. Humility and dependence and in the realization that this requires something of us. God's people devote themselves to study the scriptures. We devote ourselves to this. And and so I think God has very important and intentional reasons for giving us hard passages. But here's what I want you to realize. The Bible's mostly clear. The Bible mostly isn't hard passages. It's mostly clear. You know, my kids came and didn't speak any English. Caroline, when she was eight, and didn't speak any English. And I was amazed that after about five months, they were actually starting to understand the Bible. They actually were starting to understand it, not just in one Bible story, but I remember one day, Caroline hadn't even been here eight months, and, and she's saying, oh, Daddy, she's, she's noticing in the children's Bible, you know, Jesus and David actually look physically alike, and she's making connections between the Messiah and the King, and she's making these big theological connections in the Bible. It's mostly not hard. A kid learning English at eight years old can understand the Bible pretty well. And so because there are hard passages, let's not think it's mostly hard. It's actually mostly easy uh, or, or clear. Let's put it that way. I don't think it's ever easy to read and understand the Bible on one level. But just as far as the Bible itself, it's not that hard. Kids can understand it. That's why I love our children's ministry that has, has high, ex, high expectations for our kids. They actually assume kids can get this stuff, so let's give it to them. 
Let's not wait until they're 18 before we start teaching them real truth from the word instead of just moralistic lessons. And so it's mostly clear, but, but we forget that, especially if you're in a more academic oriented community like I can be a lot of times. You can't get something published unless you do something new, which means you focus on the most difficult things. And it seems like all there are is difficult things. Have you ever had that experience where you're diving into an issue and you say, man, how can we ever agree on anything? Christians can't seem to agree on one word in one verse. Well, that's mostly not true. Have you ever had the experience of meeting someone from a totally different culture and and race and socioeconomic status, and yet you're a brother or sister in Christ because of your fundamental beliefs and the clear things in God's word? It's, It's really amazing. So it's mostly clear. And I do want to think about this twisting because I think there are two opposite ways we tend to twist in our culture. And they're both as troubling and problematic, but... But the first is an overly subjective way of reading the Bible. One way we twist the Bible is this, this is what it means to me mentality, right? Where we rejoice in sitting around in meetings, coming up with contradictory meanings of passages, and then say, isn't God amazing? Um, Well, this is what it means to me. Well, that's, who really cares if that's not what it really means, right? We can have an overly subjective approach to this. And sometimes as a reaction against that overly subjective approach, we can so want to dive into the background issues and the, the extra biblical introductory issues that before you know it, you find all these ways outside of the Bible to explain around what the Bible's clearly saying. I think that's the main thing going on in this, pa- in this context, that these false teachers were twisting by going to hard passages and then coming up with interpretations no normal person just reading their Bible would ever come up with. They twist it. They make it say something actually not just different, but the opposite of what it says. And we have a lot of that going on, even in the church today. I know it seems to say that, but if you understood the background, as I do, you would understand it's saying the opposite of what you think it says. And, and that's not how God operates. And, but I see a lot of that going on. A way of twisting the Bible, sometimes in an overreaction to overly subjective ways of interpreting it. And they're both as problematic and both have as much potential to twist as the other. So, so they're twisting. And the main thing they're twisting is teaching on the second coming, this fundamental truth of the Christian view of things. They're distorting it. And so this twisting problem still exists today. We need to be aware of it. And we also realize in, in, in Peter's approach to this description is that the Bible's unified. Here we have Peter and Paul on the same page. They're, they're teaching the same things. They're together on this. The whole Bible bears the message, and Paul and the other scriptures do too. And isn't it amazing at the end of verse 16, he refers to Paul's writings as scriptures already being read in the church at this point in the history of the church as scripture on a plane with the Hebrew scriptures already, giving it that sort of weight and authority. And, and the, all scripture comes from God. That's what chapter 1 verse 21 clearly wants us to know. This, this is scripture and it's from God. It's not just the opinions of men. And the main point we are wanting to bear down on in this letter that the scriptures teach is the terrifying and hopeful and devastating and joyful promised day of the Lord. This day of the Lord. It's what we pray in the Lord's prayer. We pray what? That it will be on earth as it is in heaven. 
In other words, heavenly kingdom God realities will invade our daily living. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. This day of the Lord that the whole Old Testament looked forward to, that Jesus ushers in, and now the Old Testament, not, the New Testament not just looks back to, but looks forward to the second coming. We find we live in between this first and second coming of the day of the Lord, that it's been ushered in, but will come to fullness and completion when Jesus comes again. That's this age we live in now. And this was promised through the whole Bible. As I was preparing for this, this passage, I, every time I prepare a message to preach on, to, to offer as food, I, I so um, long for all of you to have the enjoyment, the blessing, the ministry of, of diving in the way, the way I am able to, right? So I, I, was, I was preparing to preach this and I thought, obviously the Holy Spirit is inspiring Peter here. But Peter's also got scripture in his head that he had known since he was a little kid. That's informing his perspective as well. It's not just new revelation. It's revelation the Spirit's bringing that's, that's bringing to life and fullness what Peter had already known from the Old Testament. And so I said, what are those passages? And with the help of, of good resources, I found those passages and I read them and I was incredibly helped by them and ministered to and blessed. And I said, oh, I wish everybody could enter into this wonderful experience with me. And I said, well, that's exactly what we're gonna do. I wanna do that. What I wanna do is just read four passages that are clearly either in Peter's mind as he writes this or completely in the New Testament connected to it. So here's what I want to do. I just want a, a few of you to read these passages for us, if you would. The first is, would you go to Isaiah chapter 60? You will hear in this description of the second coming, the day of judgment, the fire, the wrath, the, the purging, the purifying, but the new day as well, the new heavens and the new earth. These are clearly the passages that were in Peter's mind as he writes this. So Isaiah 60 and we will read verses 17 through 22. Verses 17 through 22. Jordan Weaver, would you read that for us? Here, with a microphone. Wait, you know, just, just a second. Please do everything you can to let the word of God wash over you right now. And, and bless you and encourage you and feed your soul. This is the only thing that's coming straight from God this morning is, is when we read the Bible. So go ahead, Jordan. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. 
one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will be. It's beautiful. Thank you, Jordan. Give the mic. Okay. Joyce, would you read um, Isaiah 65, verses 17 through the end? These are just, these are glorious passages. Let God feed you as we read them. Isaiah 65, 17 through the end. Rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mouth. Thanks, Joyce. And now would you just read 66.22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Amen. And then go to Romans 8. Just read 18 through 25. Matthew, would you read that for us? Thanks, Matthew. And then finally, Revelation 21. Laura, would you read that for us? Just verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21, 1 through 4.
no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Thank you. Um, oh, the, these these images, these promises, this perspective is supposed to completely take over in the way we think about our lives and live our lives. I just, I, I, I want us to, to live in and out of these passages. We see God's patience delaying his coming day. And then this, this very practical point comes out of this and it says, so in light of this amazing day that's coming, how should you live? What sort of people, not just uh, what things should you do, but what kind of people should you be? It starts with our hearts, our characters, and we're to be holy. That's, that's the first thing, holy and distinct and set apart and different. Like Trillian Newbell's quote, we're, we're, we should be so different than the, the, the stuff on Twitter, right? Normally speaking, we should be so different than the, the norm of how things go down in this life because of what we believe is coming. We should be different and distinct. We should be godly, actually like God. That's what he enables us to do and be, become like him. We are to be patient three times. It says we're waiting, which means we're patient, which means we're humble and active and trusting God's wisdom and God's timing. We're to be diligent, making every effort, earnestly pursuing these things. Verse 14. We're to be pure, without spot or blemish, free of corruption and sin, unlike these false teachers who are called blemishes themselves. We're to be stable, solid and dependable, not flaky and wavering and falling down all the time. And finally, in verse 18, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how this all comes about. That's the point of all of it. That's where First Peter starts. It's with this idea of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things will only be true for us in a truly Christian sense if, as if they're true for us in Christ. Jesus is the standard for us as we think about lives that are without spot or Jesus is the standard, but Jesus is also the sympathetic high priest who comes understanding our frailty and our struggle in living lives like this and does it in our place for us. And if your pursuit of these ways of being are not grounded in Christ's way of being for you, it'll be like every other religion in the world and not the gospel of grace that we find in Christ. So I, we've got to go back all the way to the beginning of our series in 1 Peter chapter 1 and remind ourselves of what all of these exhortations are grounded in. 1 Peter chapter 1, not 2 Peter, all the way back to 1 Peter, the first chapter of the first letter Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1, 13. This is the entire grounding of the way we are to live here. 1 Peter 1. 
Let's start at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same consistent theme. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, what's all this grounded in, though? Knowing that you were ransomed, bought back out of slavery from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. See, he's the only one who truly in this life is without blemish or spot, so we ground our faith in him and what he's done for us. He's the only one. And so as we seek to live holy lives, we ground it in his blood shed for us. He, the only pure one, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in this last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's what these things are, faith in God. That's what it's all grounded in. And yes, then it lives to lives of holiness and godliness and righteousness in our daily living. But that's not the end of the story. One day we will be set free. I heard this great quotation one time that that discipline and obedience in this life is just training wheels for heaven. And when we get to heaven, we can take those off. We're just getting ready for that day when we're lost in wonder, love, and praise, and everything will be changed forever. I want to finish our time together by looking at one more prophetic word back in Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Just go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then just go one back to Malachi, Malachi, the Italian prophet. And and here he is, um, Malachi 3, same imagery, No doubt in Peter's mind as well, I want to conclude by reading this to you and leave you with this final image of this teaching on 1st and 2nd Peter. Malachi chapter 3. Listen to this description. It sounds just like what Peter, and we find the rest of the New Testament is emphasizing for us. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in, and, and as in former years. But then one chapter over, go to chapter four and watch this image. This is what it should lead to for the people of God. For behold, chapter four, verse one, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear 
my name. And we realize that as Christians, those who fear his name get to the end of themselves and trust his provision alone in his Messiah, Jesus, by faith. That is the one who fear his name, the one who who rests in his gracious provision, the blood of Jesus. For those who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And now this is what Zechariah quotes in Luke 2 when he realizes that his baby to be born is John the Baptist who will be this one to prepare the way. He quotes this very passage. He will rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves in the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So that's the message. That's the image we finally end up with. Where should all this teaching on the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and the blood of Christ lead us? It should lead us to live like this. Is that great? I don't understand this image very well because I, unlike the Haugens, don't think I've ever actually seen this for real. But I'm told, I've read, and I've talked to people. And when you release a a calf for the first time into the pasture, that's what it does. There's a exuberant, joyful, playful expression of life and freedom. That's how God's people should live. Is that a great image? It's so strange to get there after fire and dissolving and everything melting, but we realize that that's not the end of the story. No, that's all so that you can now live this way. One day, a day is coming when another image is children will play in the street unmolested, unharmed. There's this incredible exuberant playfulness we are called to as God's people in light of the day of judgment that's coming. For those found in Christ, there is no longer anything to be terrified by, but only something to long for and look forward to. And here's the thing. I know so many of you resonate with the tears being wiped away one day. There are so many to go around. But that isn't even our ultimate goal, our ultimate vision. The main reason we end up leaping like this, and you saw it, you heard it read through all the passages, is because now our life, our light, is the very presence of God himself. We see him in the greatest joy is not even having the tears and the cancer and the death and the sin gone once and for all. The greatest joy is seeing him once and for all. That's the great goal of this. Don't get so focused on the tears being gone and the, and the pain being gone that you lose sight of the greatest goal in all of this and that's seeing him finally face to face. Seeing him finally in this. And that's why we gather, friends. That's why we do this. With a good Sunday morning, you could be mowing lawns with. And you don't, nobody mows their lawn in Southern California. Never mind, that's a bad illustration. Um, um, you could be doing, you could be baking or something. Yes, uh, you're making brunch, yeah. It's so having brunch, yeah. But instead, we're gathering here. Why? Because as I heard Melissa Schubert read from Revelation this morning during the time of worship, I know her well. We've done life together, and I know she believes every word she was reading from her heart. And I know suffering in her life, and I I know how how much this, this perspective we've been talking about invades our life. And this is true for all of you that read this morning. And for, for all of you we gathered with this morning, that's why we gather, to, to shape our perspective. 
and shape our affections. I need to, to uh, infuse faith from you into me. That's why I gather here. That's why we gather here, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which includes who he is, is the eternal son who became a man. It, it, it means what he did for us in giving his life for us, in his living and dying and rising. It's what he will do one day. We come here to shape our entire perspective on everything God says we need to cling to so we can be stable. That's the goal. And then we can live this way with a crazy, playful exuberance because we're so sure of that day to come. It hasn't come yet, so there's still plenty of tears in this life. Plenty of grief and groaning, just like the Romans passage acknowledged, but there's coming a day when it will all be made right, and so we can be people who leap like calves released from the stall. It must be an amazing thing to say, see Hawkins. I've never seen it, but what a great image, Right? That's it. Think about this image. Don't, don't let the trials of this world drag you down because Jesus said, well, I know in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, help us <laughs> to live lives uh, like leaping calves released from the stall. Help us, Lord, to, to understand what it means to be sure of that coming day when you will finally stop every mouth and everyone will be made accountable to you. And Lord, it will be a glorious day where people stream in from the nations far more numerous and diverse and wonderful than we could have ever imagined. Lord, thank you for the glorious promise of the coming day when Jesus returns. Help us to be a people who rest in that coming day, that promise you've given us, and live lives of of confident, settled stability, an enthusiastic, jubilant, joyful, playful happiness in this life. Lord, help us to be so different than this dark world. Indeed, a city set on a hill with a light that causes people to see the one who's the light of the world. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.